Hopefully you found, hopefully you found uh, 1 Corinthians 14, okay? Um, I am not going to have us stand and read the whole thing because it's a long section we're doing today. We are going to read as we go along, and that's unusual for us, but um, I'd like to do it in that way this morning. So, let's get begin. Obviously, we're back in our sermon series uh, to Paul's letter to Corinth. And you remember that we've been doing a sort of mini-series in a larger series in Corinth, in that we've been looking specifically as of late at spiritual gifts. And today's sermon is going to be really important, I think. Um, We're going to be looking at a topic that has created a lot of controversy, a lot of division within the church family. And uh, that is to do with speaking of tongues in both personal lives and in corporate settings specifically. And I know many of you come here with preconceived notions as to what this means. Uh, You have experiences surrounding this gift. And from what I know of Genesis House, uh, based on the stories and your lives, mostly negative. Mostly the negative side with the handling of tongues and things like prophecy in the church. And so I ask you to put all the negative aside. Everything you think it is and everything you think you learned about it, put it aside. Let the Word of God speak to you fresh like you've never heard it before. Keep an open mind and heart as to what God really has to say about speaking in tongues. If you have a positive view of this gift, and you've come from a charismatic background, and you've experienced it in, in the sort of consistent ways, I also ask you to put your preconceived notions aside. Because likely you're on the wrong side of Paul's balance as well. So let's dive in. Let's get the context first. Since the beginning of chapter 12, Paul has been seeking to correct a problem in Corinth. The problem has been this. The Corinthians believe that there's a superiority um, attached to having the gift of certain spiritual gifts. Certain spiritual gifts equals certain uh, spiritual maturity. And the math formula goes something like this, especially in, in the area of tongues. The ability to speak in tongues equals a sign of spiritual maturity. Or, ability to speak in tongues equals God likes you, God likes me, and He's among us. Of course, we've learned through these chapters already, this led to division and disorder in Corinth. And so Paul had to correct it. And so beginning in chapter 12, to fight against their overemphasis on one singular gift, he argued for diversity. He used the body as an illustration. He says, as God put the human body together, it's one body, but it requires diversity in parts for it to function. So it is with the body of Christ. And he said, God gave those gifts for the common good. Again, to fight against their need for a spiritual badge to say, look at me. It was for look, it's look at others and how this gift is used. In chapter 13, he corrects them by saying this, unless you have love, Unless you know how to love one another in terms of general treatment, plus how you use your spiritual gifts, it means jack squat to God. You can be the most gifted person in the world. If you don't know how to love and use your gifts lovingly, it means jack to God. You're a noisy gong, he says. So in chapter 14, he's continuing with correction. But this time... He's not, he's not going to emphasize the problem being um, the gifts in and of themselves. 
he's going to address the way they're being used in the services, in the corporate setting. To picture the scene in Corinth, it would look something like this. You've all seen the House of Commons uh, once in a while, like on the news or in things, and there's occasions where it gets really disorderly, and people are standing up and speaking over one another, and then the, the, chief, the chief of the House of Commons has got the mallet going, order, 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 as they're all trying to like speak over one another. That's what it was like in Corinth. Or like the judge in the court, right? Everyone, everything's going really well and it's calm and all of a sudden this explosion of opinions and anger and, and whatever and everyone's speaking over one another and the judge hits the hammer and goes, order in the court to bring silence. In Corinth, there's competition and rivalry within the services for airtime. And Paul has to end it. So he seeks to do it in two different ways. He needs to speak, really, he, his, actually his big argument is this. There needs to be intelligibility in the services. Everything you do has to be understood and has to be comprehensible to the listener. He speaks in verses 1 through 25 to the, the issue of intelligibility. In verses 1 through 19, he addresses the need for intelligibility for the believer. In verses 20 through 25, he addresses the need for intelligibility to the unbeliever. Okay? So this is the sermon outline. Here's today's message. He's going to argue for the whole need for things to be understood for the Christian and to the non-Christian. And next week's service, he's going to deal with the need for order. So he's going to correct the Corinthian problem in two ways, speaking the need for intelligibility and the need for order, which is next week's service. So let's dive in. In verse 1, Paul says this. Pursue love, yet earnestly desire spiritual gifts. The fact that he says pursue love makes total sense. Based on the previous argument in chapter 13, he says to the Corinthians, you think the evidence of tongue speaking and other supernatural gifts gives you maturity? Love is the true measure of Christian maturity. So therefore, continue to pursue it. But what's significant for us, church, is that even though love was to be pursued, they were still to seek after spiritual gifts. You see that? Pursue love, yet earnestly desire spiritual gifts. You know why that's so significant for us? In chapter 12, remember, five times God said, He gives you the gift, 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 He gives you the gift. So in terms of the sovereignty of God, for those of you who are all about the sovereignty of God in your lives, <laughs> the sovereignty of God says He gives them at His will. The human responsibility, you earnestly seek them. You have a role to play in receiving spiritual gifts. God will decide when He gives them, but you earnestly desire them. What an awesome corrective to Genesis hosts. Don't raise your hands. How many of you pray, have prayed earnestly for God to give you spiritual gifts in your life? Those of you who have experienced abuse and think that they have only experienced wacko-like situations, I bet you have rejected spiritual gifts intentionally because of your fight against them. The first corrective of Genesis house says, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. If God gives you them, well, He'll decide. So that's what's cool about this is if you don't get them, Let's say he doesn't give you the tongues and you're praying for tongues. It doesn't matter. God is the one who decides that. But if you pray for that and he gives it to you, you have a role to play in that. Pretty cool stuff, eh? 
So Paul's not one to throw out the baby with the bathwater. He might be fighting against abuse of tongues, but you're still to pursue those gifts. But notice the gift that Paul wants you to pursue the most. He says, especially that you may prophesy. Now I was tempted to talk about what prophecy is and what it isn't today in extensive uh, teaching. Because there's very different views as to what Paul means by prophecy. Is it just the scripture? Is prophecy just scripture? Or is it a spontaneous word given to the community? Now, I will give you a working definition today of what I think it is, or what I'm pretty, well, can I, can I arrogantly say I know what it is? Uh, but I'll prove it with scripture. <laughs> I'll give you a small definition today, but I'm not going to spend so much time as today dealing with this subject as I am focusing on what it was supposed to accomplish. So next week, a big section on prophecy. Today, what the prophecy is supposed to accomplish in the body. Why is it important? Verses 2 through 4. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in the spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. The reason why prophecy is preferred in the church gathering over tongues is clear. It's because of what it accomplishes in the body of Christ. He says here, prophecy edifies the church, edifies men, whereas tongues in and of themselves don't. They only edify the individual. And for Paul, edification of the church when meeting together corporately is the absolute priority. Six times in chapter 14, he says edification, the building up, the strengthening of the community is absolute priority. Those of you who love to circle, circle things in your Bible, look at it with me right now. Verse 3, speak for edification of the church. Verse 4, prophecy edifies the church. Verse 5, he wants everything to be interpreted if it's in tongues because he wants the church to be edified. Verse 12, he wants um, the church to be edified. Verse 17, he wants the church and not the individual to be edified. And verse 26, he wants everyone to be edified and not the, like in the body of Christ, not the individual. You get it, church? Intelligibility leads to edification. Unintelligibility, the inability to understand what's going on, leads to nothing except the personal edification of an individual. That's not the body of Christ. It's not about just you. <laughs> it's about everyone gathered. Everyone gathered. But we can learn some things about the differences between tongues and prophecy here. Look in verse 2, who tongues are for versus who prophecy is for. In verse 2 it says this, For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. The one who prophesies speaks to men, not to God. Okay? So when one person speaks in a tongue, he's not speaking to you. He's speaking to God. And when a person prophesies, he's speaking to you and not to God. Why? Because in the tongue, in this context, clearly it's not understandable. He says, for no one understands it, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. Who understands the tongue language in this context? 
only God does. The only understanding, understander of the message is God. It's a heavenly language. You guys don't get it. When it's prophecy, it's, an, it's to men because it's intelligible. It's in a human language, so you get it. Huge distinction here. That's really cool. So now we have a working definition of, spiritual, of, of tongues versus prophecy. Speaking in tongues is a gift given by the Holy Spirit whereby a non-earthly dialect is spoken to God for personal edification. Prophecy is a gift given by the Holy Spirit whereby an earthly dialect is spoken to others for their edification. Okay? So very clear from verses 2 and 3 the differences. Now, someone might say, well, because the, the, the tongue doesn't edify the body of Christ in the corporate gathering, throw the thing out. Not so fast, Paul says. <laughs> Look at verse 5. Now, I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you had prophesied, and greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. So Paul says, yeah, I'd rather you prophesy in a corporate setting rather than speak in tongues. However, because again, there's no intelligibility, but once somebody interprets a tongue and can translate that heavenly language into human language, now it has value in the body of Christ because you now can understand it. And it comes to the, it comes in the same sort of level playing field as prophecy because it's understandable. So this is really cool. We don't throw tongues out. If an interpreter is in the presence of the community, it has value because it can also bring edification. So again, we seek the healthy balance of Genesis House. Don't throw tongues out just because you don't like the heavenly language and you don't understand it. If someone in the church can interpret that, it has tremendous value. But Paul goes on to further his argument, though, here, that in the corporate worship setting, unless tongues are interpreted, that they're of really no value. And he gives three analogies to make his point. Look at verse uh, 6. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? Yet even lifeless things, either the flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will they be known? How will they know what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will they know what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no one is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks like a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, speak to abound for those that edify the church. His analogies are very clear. He uses musical instruments, and he uses uh, listening to a foreign uh, speaker in terms of a language like Chinese or, say, um, uh, you know, you know, Indian to us, for example, who don't speak those languages in our church. But like he, he says in regards to musicians and, and instruments, like, just like a, a musician, unless he changes or she changes the pitch on their instrument so as to make a melody recognizable, it's of no use because the message that they're trying to convey is lost. It's unclear. 
In the case of uh, the bugle, um, in those days that was a sound to war. If, you didn't, if that didn't make a distinction, it was disastrous in results. It would lead to uh, the loss of battle. I'll never forget, forget uh, <laughs> little Jackson. He's 10 now, but he was about four or five years old. And it was hilarious. I was down at the park by the library playing uh, my violin in a band. And we were playing some sort of country music and bluegrass music. And uh, I was requested to play the Orange Blossom Special, this song that sounds like a train coming down the tracks. The first opening notes are a train whistle. Well, I thought, I want to get Jackson introduced to music and have him encouraged about being in public on stage. And so I had this wooden train whistle that would only blow a train whistle sound. And I thought, cool, I'll get my little four-year-old to come up here, blow the whistle into the mic, and then he can go sit down and I'll continue the song. <laughs> he did it perfectly at home. It's hard to screw up a, a wooden whistle. You just blow into it and it just goes. We get up on stage, I put him in front of the mic. He was so excited and exuberant. He blowed so hard, he went like this. <laughs> Not a single sound of that flute came out. And I, and I said, try again, and he was laughing hard, and I was laughing. He couldn't get the sound out. So here's the point. The audience had no idea what song was coming up because all they heard was this disastrous sound out of this whistle. Needless to say, I don't think that's been blown ever since. But it was hilarious because like, I had to then play the song and get it up to speed so no one, everyone knew what I was doing. But this is the issue. Um, I even think it's hilarious because to, in our culture, to get people to understand languages, we do other things too, but we'll get into that in a second. But, so that's the music illustration. But Paul also gives the foreign language illustration. And when he talks about a foreigner here, he's not using this to think of tongues as simply another foreign language. He's using the analogy to say this. It has to do with the effect that the, the sound has on the listener. If it's an unknown language, it just simply makes no sense. You know, I love it when people speak slow, right? So we, we've all done it, which is hilarious. And I don't know why, we're just, we're just silly. But imagine like, you know, a Chinese person comes up to you, or no, let's say you're in a Chinese context and they don't speak a lick of English. And you go, hello, how are you? And they, and they kind of look at you and you go, hello, how are you? Like they're all of a sudden going to understand it. Like, the speed of your language doesn't mean intelligibility, folks. We're all guilty, aren't we? Ever been to Mexico, and they try to order something, and you get slower? Anyway, I'm not here to defend your logic or, or brain power or anything like that. But Anyhow, okay. But beginning in verses of... Uh, well, actually... This is why Paul in verse 13 says this, though, eh? He says, Therefore, let one who speaks in the tongue pray that he interpret. Because once you interpret, all of a sudden, the, the musical instrument makes sense, the foreign language makes sense, the heavenly language makes sense, and it's all logical and comprehensible. So in 14 through 17, Paul goes on to explain why intelligibility is necessary. He says this, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with my spirit, and I will pray with my mind. I will sing with the spirit, I will sing with my mind. Otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only, how will the one who fills this place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. Again, Paul's explaining why interpretation in the corporate setting is so important. 
He says, when one prays in the Spirit, a.k.a. unintelligible heavenly language, that's different than praying in the mind. A prayer from the mind is intelligible, obviously, because it can be understood. So he says, when you pray from the Spirit, unintelligibly, the people listening in the congregation, the people listening in the congregation can't say their amen to what's being said because there's no interpreter. So it might benefit you, but it doesn't benefit them. And I love Gordon Fee's definition of an amen. He says, a definition of amen is this. In his words, this was a wholehearted response to the endorsement of the words of another. A wholehearted endorsement to the words of another. If you're praying in the Spirit, and that's the gift, it's the heaven language, you can't say your amen. They can't do it. They don't know what you're saying. So they can't endorse what you're, what you're conveying. However, if there's an interpreter, and you're praying with your mind, you can give an amen, because now the language is, in is intelligible now to the audience. But just for fun, this is really cool. Look at the content of a prayer in tongues. Did you notice the content? Look at verse 16. He says, if you bless in the Spirit. Look at verse 17. It's the giving of thanks. Cool, hey? What's the content of a personal prayer between you and God speaking in tongues? You're praising God. You're giving Him thanks. Doesn't that make sense? Based on the rest of Scripture? How much content is given to praying, giving thanks to God and praising His name? In English or in Hebrew or whatever language you happen to speak? Consider Psalm 34 verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. I lost that in my mouth for, for a second. Luke 10, 21. At that very time, Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the, God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It's cool, the personal prayer in the prayer of tongues to the Lord is a giving of thanks. But if there's no interpreter, you don't know what they're giving thanks for. You don't know how they're blessing His name. I thought we would do a really cool illustration. I want to put everything into practice that we've learned so far. And to put the, the concepts of Paul into practice so you understand the importance of interpretation and intelligibility to benefit you as a congregation. And I've asked Pat and my mom to participate, but before they come up, I'm going to put you guys on the spot. Now you have to participate, don't leave me high and dry. Otherwise this will... I'm trusting you. This is called faith. This is called faith. I'm trusting you to participate. If you don't, well... You snooze, you lose, I guess. Especially you extroverted people, this is your chance to be a clown. Or just have fun, okay? Pat's going to come up, and he's going to pray in French. He's going to pray a prayer in French. Nobody in this congregation understands French, do they? Laura? I doubt you'll understand Pat's French. <laughs> Elizabeth Walton's the only one that probably would. So he's going to come up and give a prayer. He's going to pause after every sentence, and you're going to yell out, Amen, praise God, 
or hallelujah, something affirming, okay? You willing to participate? I expect to hear praise the Lord, or hallelujah, or we love you, Lord. Speak it, Pat. You know, something like that, okay? All right. Pat, come up and uh, do your thing. Et join me in prayer. La plupart de vous savez que depuis mon enfance, j'ai aimé patiner. Et j'ai toujours été un partisan des habitants. En fait, une des meilleures années de ma vie a été quand ils ont gagné la série contre les rois de Los Angeles pour remporter la coupe. Je ne veux pas parler trop tôt, mais peut-être que cette année est l'année où vous pourrez répéter l'exploit. S'il vous plaît, priez pour moi. Amen. Good job, church. Okay. You're going to do the interpretation? No, you do. Oh, no, you do. No, you do. Actually, I, I can't interpret your language. Oh, sure. So, uh, so uh, in corporate settings and in charismatic churches, they're going crazy. And if you ask them, are you edified? They say, absolutely. Paul says, if it's unintelligible, it's not an edification. Only edifies Pat between him and God personally. You are not edified. You, you can say you are emotionally, but the scripture will argue against your understanding of edification. It didn't benefit you one all. You were saying amen and praise God. Now let's have Pat interpret his prayer as what he was saying. I can repeat it slower, if that helps. <laughs> but mainly what I said is, most of you uh, know that since my youth, I have loved hockey and have always cheered for the Canadians. In fact, one of the best years of my life was in 1993 when they defeated the Los Angeles Kings in the playoffs to win the cup. I don't want to speak too, speak too, too soon, but this may be the year they could pull it off again. Please pray for me. Emotionally, you can think God's presence was there all you wanted. His message had nothing to do with anything spiritual or anything to do with God. But because of your background, the, the charismatic circles, all these things, we just get caught up in our emotions into this mumbo-jumbo that is private. I shouldn't say it's mumbo-jumbo. It's not fair. That's, it's a private prayer between them and God. It does matter. They're giving thanks and blessing, but it does not edify the congregation. Most of you know I was born in the Northwest Territories. My mom and dad can speak fluent Inuktitut, which is the Eskimo language. And so my mom's going to pray a prayer in Inuktitut, and I will be, I have the gift of interpretation. Because I can't, I don't have a gift for Pat, but I have the gift here to interpret my mom's language because God has given me the gracious gift of the Inuktitut language. So pretend this is a heavenly language, though. It might as well be to you. You would know the difference. Okay? So, Mom, can you go ahead? Atunir Guti, Kuyani Vivatikit, Tamani Guti, Uvatini, 
Iyanami Tsuxiakitini, Sinajua Nimamu, Ilali Umatitini, Takusimabamu, Namakibamu, Kuyali Vigibatikibu, Piat Sabtini, Tunisi Vigibatibu, Udlu Tamat, Jesusi Erna Maplitasimayo, Nipsutani, Kuyali Vigibatikit, Piyoginibut, Isimati Yunara Simagatitit, Koyanamik Jesusu Inusina Nik, Nagalinia Niglo, Tokalinia Niglo, Napartumi, Atanil Atinga Simatitali. All right. See if you can say your amen to this prayer. Lord God, Thank you for your presence among us. We see your power in our church, in the world, and indeed in our own hearts, and we are grateful. Thank you for meeting our daily needs. We praise you for your son, Jesus. We give you thanks for the forgiveness we've been granted through his love, his life, and his death on the cross. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And God's people said? Amen. Okay. The gift of interpretation needed for the building of the body of Christ. Other than that, Paul says, throw it out. You keep that to yourself. If you're going to pray in tongues personally in a church setting, keep it quiet. Just pray quietly to yourself, but don't let the other people in the church hear you and make a big showing. Don't give the church the airtime of your personal prayer life in those ways. In your personal prayer closet at home, go to town. You can scream it out, yell it out, sing it out, whatever you want to do. You can dance while you're praying in tongues. But again, it'll edify you, which is a good thing, but it won't edify the community in any other setting. So that's the context of the believing community. What does Paul say about the need for uh, intelligibility in the unbelieving community? You pick this up in verse 20. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants. But in your thinking be mature. Again, why does he say that? They've been immature. They think the presence of unintelligible tongues is a sign that God likes me. Paul says you're immature to think that way. You need an interpreter. Then he says this, In the law it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then tongues are a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is a sign not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Here's the key, church. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men, basically unlearned people, or unbelievers enter, will they not say you're mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed, so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. Again, once again, Paul here contrasts the difference between uh, intelligible language and unintelligible language and and does it so by contrasting uninterpreted tongues and prophecy. So, he says this, if you're all speaking together in conjunction with, over each other and competing for airtime, and you're doing this in a heavenly language that no one understands, the ungifted people or the unbelievers there they're not going to want to come to know God because of this. 
they're going to want to deny God because of this because they think they're in a nut house. The word mad in Greek is the word insanity. And it's used in John 10, 20. Jesus has just done some teaching and they said, you're insane, you're demon possessed. Because they could not listen to the words he was saying. So this is what's going on here. So again, hearing uninterpreted tongues doesn't draw people closer to God, it pushes them away. In charismatic circles, they don't think that. They think that that's a sign of the presence of God and it's good for the community to hear this. Prophecy, however, is different because it's intelligible and understood. It leads to conviction and to conversion. I love what Gordon Fee says, because here he says he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all, based on the prophecy. Listen to Fee's words. Like, this is why you've got to read commentaries. He says, um, the two verbs together, convicted and called to account, they imply the deep probing work of the Holy Spirit in people's lives, exposing their sins and thus calling them to account before the living God. Then he continues to say, such inherent exposure is the call to repentance, the summons to have one's sins exposed and forgiven by a merciful God. But that kind of gives you a picture into what the content of prophecy might be. If you've been given the gift of prophecy and you're speaking that out loud, you're probably talking, you're speaking into the, the person's current spiritual condition. God's given you an insight into their lives. And so when you declare that, they're like, my goodness, like God must be here. That's about me. So he's, he's, he's revealing the contents of people's thoughts and hearts that, that no one in the congregation in Corinth would know. And yet God, through this person, let's say like Blake's been given a gift of prophecy, he stands up and says this and say like, you know, my wife at the time is an unbeliever. She's like, my goodness, like God must be in this house because there's no way he knew that about my life and what I'm up to in my, private, <laughs> in my privacy of my own home. So it's really, really cool. Like uh, what uh, the... the, uh, the the, again, the need for intelligibility in the congregation. Okay. So many lessons, I could say, worded in so many different ways. I've got six, but I'll go through them quickly to finish. Number one. I didn't decide to use that. Okay. Although love is to be pursued and is the true marker of a believer's spiritual maturity. Spiritual gifts are still to be eagerly desired. Even though love is the true marker, still pursue spiritual gifts. Yes, God is the one that gives them five times, and he says that in chapter 12, but don't swing out and don't not pursue them because you've been wounded or hurt in some other way. You know what's cool? I can't tell you just how yet, because I haven't told the uh, elders, but we are going to be corporately pursuing spiritual gifts from now on. And I'm going to share with you in the future how we're going to do that as a body of Christ. Number two, the spiritual gifts to be desired are those that build up and strengthen the church corporately, since that is the purpose of the church gathering. Six times, he says, edification, edification, edification. That's the purpose of the gathering of the community, not to highlight and select individuals and the gift that they may possess. Again, there to be the ones that are desired are the ones that build up the body. And he gives other ones in here, hey? He says, um, he says uh, in verse 3, the, pro the one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. Uh, 
Oh no, I actually missed that. It's verse 6. If I come to you speaking in tongues, what will it profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? But what's the commonality? They're all speaking gifts that are all intelligible. All of those different kind of gifts. They're all necessary. Because they build up the body of Christ. However, actually not however, in, in, in uh, continuing on, as a result of the need for edification then, prophecy and other intelligible speaking gifts are to be desired over and above tongues in corporate worship. Actually, I think I just repeated myself in the way verse 6 says that. The exception is when tongues are interpreted. So again, always pursue the intelligible gifts over and above tongues in corporate worship. But when tongues are interpreted, they can be part of the service because they build up the body of Christ. Lesson four, not only intelligible speaking gifts to be pursued because they strengthen the community of believers, they are necessary in leading people to become followers of Jesus. That's verses 24 and 25. So again, intelligible speaking gifts have the chance of leading someone to Christ because they understand the language. Unintelligible, they can't understand the language, they think you're crazy and insane. Number five, I want to define speaking in tongues further and prophecy further from my earlier definition. Speaking in tongues is a gift of the Holy Spirit, whereby a non-earthly dialect is spoken to God in prayer for the purpose of thanksgiving and personal edification. Prophecy is a gift of the Holy Spirit, whereby an earthly dialect is spontaneously given to be spoken to others for the purpose of their edification. Mouthfuls, but they're uh, worded intentionally that way. Okay, so there's a big difference in who they're to, to benefit. Once uh, a tongue is interpreted, it can fall more in the prophecy category in terms of how it is accomplished, or what it accomplishes. And finally, really important for us, Genesis House, in churches and denominations where speaking in tongues are misused and even abused, we need to be careful not to immediately write them off as, not, as being non-Christian or even heretical. They are simply immature. Verse 20 Listen to this. Verse 20. Do not be children in your thinking. Yes or no? Paul said to the Corinth, because you're a total whack job in the area of tongues, you must not know God. You must not be a Christian. Not a chance. Chapter 1. I'm writing to the saints, right? You're not lacking any spiritual gift. Our tendency is to say, is to completely wipe out denominations because they're not quote unquote as mature as us. Do not err on that side. Now, are some denominations or churches potentially uh, not uh, like uh, non Christian, or I guess you could say, or don't know the Lord? Yeah. But that, it's not because of their tongue speaking or their understanding of gifts, it's because of their understanding of the cross and what Christ accomplished and how they love one another in the community. That's a separate issue. Don't confuse the issues. 